greetings. Welcome back to Redrawing the Bath. Today, as always, I have the uh, special opportunity to welcome someone uh, who has shaped my faith in, in many different ways, whose, whose work has brought me healing and, and, and stability in, in very unsure times within my own faith transitions, faith journey, within my own doubts. Um, and today I get to talk to the guest about something very timely about how as, as the world kind of is divided over uh, truths, as the world is kind of divided over worldviews and, and theology and morality and all of these things, I get to talk about how love matters more than those things. So today I'd like to welcome to the show the co-author of Genesis for Normal People, the author of the new book, Love Matters More, and the co-host of the only God-ordained podcast on the internet, The Bible for Normal People, Jared Bias. Jared, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, and thank you for those kind words. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. So we've had you on the show before, and so I usually start by asking people their story, but since we've we've kind of talked about that, I'd love to just kind of jump right into it. Um, and I guess the first question right off the bat is, as I was reflecting on the last time that we talked, which is going, it's going to be released the week before this one comes out. Um, I was thinking about the accusation that is kind of leveraged against people as they start deconstructing and their faith starts changing and they start uh, reading things from from different lenses, whether it's uh, an evangelical reading things from a liberation theology perspective or a complementarian reading things from an egalitarian perspective, or even more so kind of questioning things like inerrancy. The thing that's uh, always tacked on is this accusation of the slippery slope towards moral relativism. And so I'd love for you to just kind of touch on that for, for those of us that's like, how do, how do I respond to that? Well, it's interesting because I'm people who accuse other people of that, I think have not actually ever met a true moral relativist. Um, <laughs> so it's sort of like the boogeyman. I think of it as like, uh, you know, it's, it's something that's leveraged against someone almost as a scare tactic for why we need to stay within the bounds of what we've always been taught. Because if we don't, there is a slippery slope. And at the bottom is this scary thing called moral relativism. Uh, and, you know, if you're in philosophy and you read philosophers and people who are really smart about ethics and how we get our morals, there aren't any real true moral relativists in that sense. So I'm not, mm. I, my first thing would be to say, well, what do you mean by that? And, the response would be, well, I'm not that. Um, and then it's going to sort of force it back onto them to sort of show why they would think that you would be a moral relativist. Now, the question is, do our morals and do our beliefs about morality change over time in different times and cultures? I think that's true. And I think that's fairly um, unproblematic. And I think it's pretty clear to see throughout time. Now, we may have these inclinations of a, a few core ethical principles about murder and killing and harming. However, I would say what that means over time has actually changed. And you know, we, we make exceptions, say, for just war theory, and it's okay to be in the military, and it's okay to kill, quote, like national enemies and these kinds of things. So we, mm. over time, carve out our own idiosyncratic understanding of these principles. And so I think the danger for me is actually people who say they are moral absolutists and it happens to be that all the absolutes are the morals they hold. That feels mm. to me more dangerous than someone who says, hey, I hold these things loosely. I hold them more humbly. I could be wrong about them, 
I'm guided by love and by kindness and compassion, and I'm open to figuring out what that means. Mm, yeah, that's that's great. Um, and, and I think that's what's so difficult, especially coming from um, a perspective of, of a student. Like for, for myself, when I deconstructed, I was telling uh, a friend of mine who's kind of in the beginning of, of their own kind of faith journey of why it was not easy for me, but why, what made it easier was my um, inclination towards being a student, of, of wanting to get to the bottom of it. But also it was a weakness because I came from a, a curriculum background where, where truth was this static thing. Like it, it never, it never moved and it was, and it was all encompassing, right? It was never this, uh, there, there wasn't, it was just truth as this kind of blanket statement. And then obviously recently it's been learning about new perspectives and, and different interpretations and, and stuff like that. And so what I think the biggest struggle for a lot of people within that is, okay, well, I was raised in this sphere where just truth was truth, but now I'm realizing that there are different perspectives. So I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm wondering like what, where, where does the balance happen? Cause I would assume we would both say that we believe in, in some level of absolute truth. Yeah. So there's a few different ways of, of thinking about this. And I think, you know, I, I talk about this in the book and I think in our culture right now at large, we're, ships passing in the night when we talk about truth because i don't think we understand what each other is saying i I don't know if we even understand what we're saying when we talk about truths and so in the book i break it down into three categories which is even there probably oversimplifying but if we think about facts as opposed to meaning as opposed to wisdom we often will use the word truth or true in relationship to each of those when they're distinct in their own way. So I think that's important to recognize because when I say something like, uh, I want you to speak your truth, somebody might say, oh, well, that means you don't believe in like facts and observable phenomenon. It all is just subjective. And that's saying, no, when I use truth in that sense, I mean meaning. I mean, what resonates with you? Uh, what hmm. What is authentic to you in this uh, emotional, psychological, spiritual sense? That's different than what are the observable facts about the world? And it's important because how we come to those conclusions about what is true is different in each of those spheres. And we, if we get them confused, I think we end up frustrating each other um, about that. But when you talk about absolute truth, now, I, I actually don't like the phrase, do you believe in absolute truth? I think it, mm, yeah. it, it betrays so much uh about us <laughs> from the beginning just even asking that question uh, or making that statement um it it privileges mm. belief which is something i would have grown up with that what you believe is the most important thing um mm. when i would argue that a lot of people quote unquote believe a lot of things that doesn't have an impact on their actual everyday walking around life so I'm much more interested mm. in in how we behave, how we exist in the world, and less interested in what someone believes, because there's a thin line, if not a disappearing line, between what I believe and what I wish I believed. Hmm. If it stays in my head, I'm allowed to be self-deceptive to where those two things really are identical. Um, so... To, to believe in absolute truth is I don't like the belief part of that. And I also don't like the absolute truth part of that because mm. 
are we saying that there is a a world of physical objects out there that interact in a certain way? Who who doesn't believe that? I, I again, I don't know of anyone who doesn't believe that. Um, right. That makes zero sense to me. Um, but the question is, do we have access to things in themselves or are we always and already interpreting them based on our limited framework and experience as an embodied human being born in the, you know, 1984 in Amarillo, Texas is, is the, is reality bigger than what I can put my arm around because I'm only one person seeing it from one perspective. And I think in that sense, Mm. No, I don't believe in absolute truth, meaning I don't think any human being can grasp ultimate reality. And more importantly, I don't think we could know if we were doing that because we are always in our own bodies from our own perspective. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. That, man, makes me want to throw out the the entire absolute truth question. But I, I hate being asked that because it's a question that I get asked all the time. And it, it's, it's one of those kinds of questions where it's like either way, it, it, it's a, it's a pitfall. It's a tra- yeah, it's a trapping it's, question. It's a, but, and that's, what's so difficult about it is it's the, the absolute truth that they're really, that people are really asking about is uh, this, like their absolute truth. It's a, they, they have these ways of, of kind of, I don't want to say manipulating because that makes it sound like it's this, this ma- malicious thing that they're doing, but they have these inclinations and and ways of thinking that it's like, okay, well, if you believe in absolute truth, then a plus B equals C and you have to believe this way, completely ignoring all the things that uh, affect the way that we view the world of experience and upbringing and uh, intersectional uh, experience and, and all these ways that, that really transform the way that we view the world, the way that we view truth, the way that we view God. And, And I think that's, what's so frustrating about it. And so, I mean, this show's really about equipping people to to have those conversations, to to practice those things within themselves. And so for so many of us, we have relationships that are existing with people within, whether it be Reformed camp or Fundamentalist camp or uh, Evangelical camp that would say something like that. So what does what does the beginning of that conversation look like in a um, in a productive manner? Yeah, and I, I say this quite often that I think for me the most disarming thing in a conversation is to ask questions. So if someone mm. came to me and asked me, "Do you believe in absolute truth?" my first response would be, "That's a great question. Um, can you tell me, like, what what do you, I want to make sure we're on the same page? What do you mean by absolute truth?" Mm. Uh, and from there, I would I would seek first to understand what every term is loaded with meaning. Um, so I would want to unpack what they mean by those things first so that we can have something tangible. I think a lot of people in religious communities, especially Christianity, especially evangelicalism, they use these buzzwords, but they haven't really stopped to unpack it for themselves and ask, okay, if I ask one or two layers deep what that means, how would I respond to that? So I want to force them to think about it for themselves and not in a way to catch them or anything, but because I really want to connect with them. And so to do that, right. I have to get beyond the catchphrases and the buzzwords and the gotcha moments. And I find questions are a powerful way to do that. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think that is, yeah, that's that's such a powerful thing to do within, um, it's not something I'm good at at all because I love those gotcha moments. Um, but within within just discourse in general, I mean, within our culture i mean you go onto youtube and you'll see so and so destroys 
so and so and it it's on both sides you see it on, on you see it more so on the conservative side but you see you also see it on the liberal side of uh ben shapiro destroys a uh, marxist college student or, or whatever the the little thumbnail is but we're so caught up in in kind of just destroying people and annihilating people in these arguments instead of actually building relationships with them and and i I don't know. I, I don't really have a, any idea as to why that started or where that comes from. And I was wondering, as someone whose background is within having those conversations, why do you think that is that our that our culture is so obsessed with just destroying people in conversation? Well, this in, in some ways, you, you kind of set up the book in, in a perfect way. I, I think there's two things. One's abstract and one I think is more emotional and concrete. One is I think on the more abstract side, we have inherited a set of beliefs about the world, a worldview that privileges ideas over emotion, mm -hmm. over connection, over relationships, at least in my Christian tradition, for sure, which I would argue mm -hmm. is part of this larger modern way of thinking, which we've had around for the last 500 years since the, the Renaissance um, and the Enlightenment, that we privilege thoughts over other ways of being. So I think that already sets us up a little bit for this tenuous relationship. But then currently, mm -hmm. I think there's, for me, I can, I speak from my experience. When I was that way, it was because one, I was insecure in my own beliefs. And so the more harshly I could communicate that to someone else, the more I felt more, uh, the more confident I felt. Um, I think there is a true a true belief that changing someone's mind about things is going to be the thing that changes the world. Um, mm. And and then thirdly, I think emotionally, it helps us feel like we belong to a tribe when we can distance ourselves from the opposite tribe. So I think mm. there's a sense of belonging that's connected with that. Um, but it props us up. It, it feeds our ego. I mean, I think there's all kinds of emotional and psychological reasons why we tend to go in that direction. Um, mm. But, but you know, the antidote for me is that love matters more. It's that the, the way we interact with people is actually just as important toward making the world a better place as whatever the content of that belief or whatever the content of that idea is. Mm. Yeah. Dang. Love matters more. Someone, someone should write a book and, and call it that. I think that, <laughs> that might be a good idea. Yeah. I'll get, I'll get right on that. It seems, it seems like a pretty marketable title. If you ask me, well, I hope you're uh, right. <laughs> well, in all seriousness though, you, you just came out with a book and, and it's so, we were talking before we started recording. It's such a timely conversation to be having because within, I mean, shoot, with the election right around the corner, uh, with everything going on in American cities, um, with it feels like every other day there's a shooting and then every following week there's a, a, a protest and then there's all these angry people on Facebook and Twitter and everything on both sides. And even within the church, I mean, I was just on Twitter the other day, which I don't know why I keep doing that to myself, but uh, I saw someone going after a very prolific um, female Bible teacher. And, and it's like every day this person gets these 
just very vitriolic and hateful messages. And it's like, why do you keep doing this? And so you've written this book called Love Matters More. And the the subtitle is, I think, very poignant and perfect for this time period that we are in now. It's how fighting to be right keeps us from loving like Jesus. And it's it makes so much sense. Like the the, the idea that love matters more. And if you asked any Christian in America, regardless of their upbringing, they would say, yeah, absolutely, for the most part. Um, but for the sake of having that conversation, Jared, what does love matter more than? Well, I, I mean, the, the simple answer is it matters more than anything. Um, and mm. I think that's important. But but I, I specifically targeted two things because they were experiences in my life. One, it matters more than my need to feel or be right. Love mm. matters more than being right. And I think that's really important. And two, this is the more maybe controversial thing to say, uh, that love matters more than the truth. And it's not, I I purposely didn't want to call this book only love matters because I don't think that's helpful either. So I think it's a matter Mm. of priority. It's that, you know, you said there's no Christian in America probably who wouldn't say that love matters more. Love is the most important thing. However, we usually squeeze into the definition of love telling people our opinion and trying to change their mind. That mm. somehow the most loving thing I can do is actually to convince you to believe like me. Yeah. And I think that's that's unhelpful and it's also untrue. Mm. Yeah. And and that's the that that was the that was the optimist in in me uh saying that uh that any christian in america because we've all had those conversations of like hey i'm saying this because i love you but i'm gonna say this thing that's gonna mess up your whole week um but and that's the that's the tough thing too right is 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 love love does matter more but like you said i mean love matters more than being right and so i guess the the next question following that is is what like, what does that look like within within the life of a of a believer with both or within the life of a Christian with other Christians or within themselves? Like, how does that work with the um, with the desire and uh, calling to become a holy person or to live in holiness? How how are you using that? What what what's the con? What's the contrast? Like, uh, I, I think the, for so, for, at least for myself growing up in a very, um, conservative Christian environment, it was like, yeah, like love matters, but, um, love matters enough for me to tell you all the things that you're doing wrong and love matters enough for you to, um, change. And it became this very shame, shameful thing. And I think in, in love there's freedom, but in other things, like, it, it's like what you said the other day, if, if it's not, if it doesn't set you free, it's not truth. Um, and so with that in mind, like what, how does, how does love mattering more than anything kind of manifest itself with kind of the Christian life? Well, I think one really important facet that's just been coming to mind more recently, actually, is that love does the work. I feel Mm. like we use truth telling as a shortcut, like Hmm. somehow if the most important thing I can do to love you is to tell you my opinion, 
it, it makes me think of, you remember, I don't know if you've seen these like in the 50s or 60s, they had this, uh, the idea was that if you wore this belt around your waist and it shook a lot, that it would it would take off all the fat. So you didn't actually have to exercise. You just like put this uh, huge machine with a belt around you and turned it on and it like jiggled your stomach. And that was supposed to mm-hmm. like that. I feel like is what we do with, with telling people our opinion. It's like, well, mm-hmm. actually loving someone and doing the work of investing in their life and making these emotional deposits and being there for them when we need them. That's really hard. And there's mm-hmm. a shortcut which is I can say that the most loving thing to do is just tell you my opinion and get you to change your mind. That That's easier. Mm. So let's just go there. Um, mm. So I think love mattering more is important because I feel like we have this uh, deficit of relationship. That's mm. We have a lack of investment in each other. And now we're just lobbing grenades from these uh, isolated towers that aren't connecting at the at the roots of embodiment, of of face-to-face interactions, of helping you move, of being there for when you need you need to talk to someone and process and not judge, and uh, you know carrying emotional weight with someone and accepting them for who they are, and these things that I think we all say we do well, uh, but then it's clear when we have to say a hard truth to someone or we feel we need to give our opinion, and they don't take it well, we wonder why not, and I think it's because mm-hmm. we're missing this foundation of loving action toward one another Mm, yeah no the 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 key to it is is, i mean it's it's your book i mean the key to it is love and and it's so it's so fascinating having having kind of experienced not excommunication but kind of being shunned out of certain uh reformed communities and whatnot and having friends that have gone through similar things now and and seeing this um, these people being brutally, like, I don't even like to say the word or use the word confronted, but brutally like rebuked and maligned and shamed for the questions that they have. And I always kind of go back to the story of Jesus with the woman at the well. And this woman walks away from this encounter with Jesus. And she, she says, this man has told me everything I've ever done. And that's, that's almost kind of seen as a good thing. Like it's a, it's a moment of joy for her. And I think for so many people, for so many years, they've been in, in church contexts where they've been told everything they've ever done, but it leads to shame. It leads to um, excommunication. It leads to reclusion. It, it leads to feeling like they can't love Jesus anymore, feeling all these different things. And, and I kind of mentioned it earlier, but you, you posted something the other day that really caught my eye where you said, if it's not, if it doesn't set you free, it's not truth. And so I'd love for you to just expound on that. Cause I think that that's a really profound idea. Yeah. I mean, it comes from just reflecting on, on Jesus's statement in John eight thirty two. he says, if you, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And hmm. for me growing up, what that meant was, um, the reason the truth is important is because it frees you. The reason you have hmm. to believe the right things is because you'll feel free. And then I felt kind of broken, I guess when it didn't work, Mm. like the more I knew, the less free I felt, I felt trapped. Um, I Mm. felt closed in. I felt suffocated. I didn't feel free the more I knew. So then I thought, well, maybe that's not truth. Maybe that's not what Jesus means. And so it started to creep into my mind, but like, what if we flipped that verse around? You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. So the, the, Maybe Jesus is giving us a criteria, a litmus test for what counts as truth. 
So if it doesn't set you free, and Jesus said that the truth will set you free. So if it doesn't set you free, it's not the truth. Mm. And it's just a, it's a more existential understanding, which frankly, that sounds all uh, modern and, and a high, you know, um, a, a fancy language to say it's existential. But really all I mean is that it's relational and it's practical and it's, it's about our everyday walking around life. And if you look in the Bible at the uh, times that truth is used. And so when I was doing research for the book, of course, I'm super nerdy. And I, I started with every time the Greek and Hebrew words that are most often translated truth are used, I went through all of them just to see like, what's the lay of the land? Almost never, mm. almost never is it used in this sense of an abstract belief that must be defended. Mm. It is almost always used in the sense of being honest with one another, not deceitful being trustworthy these relational words is what the bible talks about when it talks about truth mm. yeah no not to not to segue but you 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 caught my attention with something you just mentioned of within the original greek and hebrew it, it was it wasn't really this this abstract idea that needed to be defended and i think something that so many um christian thinkers will say is that the church really influenced philosophy um it really influenced the way that we think uh about the or it, it influenced the way that philosophers think about the world and it feels like the further and further i go down the rabbit hole or the slippery slope or whatever word you want to use i'm beginning to really recognize that if anything it was actually the opposite when you look at the early church uh it, it seemed like they were actually co-opted by the philosophical uh trends or fads of the time and and so I think I think it is really important to go back to the the Greek and Hebrew and understand what's actually going on and especially how the early church really responded to those things. And so I, how was truth used w within those contexts? In in the in the Bible itself? Yes. Yeah, I mean again from the from the very beginning, you know, the first time that the word truth is used um it's used in the sense, again, of being trustworthy um, or faithful. Mm. So the, the first time it's used actually in Genesis, in chapter 24, um, when it's uh, in used in, in terms of Abraham, it says, uh, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. And that word faithfulness mm. is the word that we would most often translate as truth or true. Hmm. So that's it's it's faithfulness um it's it's people living right rightfully uh, with other people it's people who aren't liars who, who aren't deceivers and that's uh, you know often the case um is you know this idea of honesty and that's what we see all the way through and then the new testament itself uses it in the same you know way so um I think those are, you know, I, when I, I kind of have this bulleted point list of things, and, and it's most often used as faithfulness or trustworthiness. You get a little bit of that sense of uh, truth-telling the way we use it in a few passages where it talks about fair testimony. So it's in this context of, like, court proceedings, um, mm. and you want to give fair testimony. But even there, it's basically not lying. Um, it's not lying about your neighbor in court. Uh, and then... Mm you know, then there's this authenticity 
uh, peace, which is really only a few times, and it's a different Greek word, but it's related, and that's in in John uh, John four when he says, uh, you know, you will we shall uh, worship in spirit and in truth, and uh, that word there is more about authenticity. Um, so mm. th- that's really what it is. I mean, it's it is very relational. Hmm. Yeah. No, and and that's so interesting of of even just thinking about who we talked. I I mentioned a little earlier that I was talking to uh, another guest the other day about Christocentric hermeneutics and and a way of reading the Bible that all revolves around Jesus, and that's what's so fascinating to me of of how Jesus is called the Word, and he's called love, and then Jesus actually himself says that your word is truth, and so. It, it makes even more sense to to see this um, person encapsulate the word who is love, but is also truth, meaning like steadfast and faithful. And it completely changes the game of, of I think, how we're supposed to live in community within the context of it's not actually about defending the things we believe, but about being steadfast and faithful to not necessarily hold people accountable, but to be Jesus to one another. And so I, I think to me, in my mind, that's like the the epitome of what love looks like. But I, I would be interested just from the, the title of your book and, and the work that you've done recently. What what is love? What what does that mean? What is love? Yeah. What's the, I always forget the name of the band that has every time somebody asks me that question, I have that song that goes through my head um, from Saturday Night Live in the 90s. Um, oh yeah no i i don't who is it's, it it's uh, had haddock oh it's it's like a one word we'll have to do like a fact check about that um oh yeah but all i know is that eminem sampled it off of a uh, recovery with a little oh Wayne. really yeah he he did a song called no love with uh yeah that was yeah. interesting that yeah yeah it was, so yeah. um you know I, in the book i actually use a, a definition of love that's uh, by uh, Bell Hooks. And she talks about it as the will to extend oneself. Um, and I'm going to get this wrong. I'm not going to quote it verbatim, but it's the will to extend oneself uh, for the purpose of extending uh, one's own or someone else's spiritual growth. Hmm. And I, I like that. Um, hmm. But then it's also interesting because, um, sorry, I'm thinking at the same time here. No, you're fine. Um, it's also interesting because she has these other words that we would be more uh, in line with kind of how we think about it. Um, I got to, I'm not thinking of it right now. That's not good. No, you're good. Um, shoot. I wanted to find uh, or think about those because they were really, um, they were really ha- helpful. But it, you know, I mean, it things it's things like, I guess that's the thing too. You mentioned earlier, like if it doesn't set you free, it's not truth. And I would say if it doesn't set you free, it's not love either. And and the whole point of the book, by the mm. way, is to say that uh, ultimately truth is a facet of love. Th- those aren't mm. the, those yeah. aren't different things. They're not intention, nor are they the two horses that carry us along in the Christian life, but actually in its most, uh, in its most human expression, truth is love. Hmm. 
Um, and so I think that's a really important point to make. Hmm. You know, I I was just re- reflecting even before we started uh, talking about uh, something that keeps coming up over and over again with um with with just different people that I that I've interviewed and and whatnot is that the more my mind kind of changes to a more um optimistic outlook of like myself and and the eschaton and um all of these things i i genuinely actually see myself becoming a better christian like i see myself becoming a better Mm -hmm. um uh person relationally and with evangelism not that i necessarily like do that very much or at least in the in the way i was traditionally trained to do it um I see my, like when it comes to, to things like, uh, you, you are like universal reconciliation. I see myself become a better friend to people, which in turn makes me a better evangelist to people. And, uh, with, uh, with kind of walking away from total depravity, I watch myself be able to love myself better and actually be able to love other people better, um, than I was before. And then even with, with the, the paradigm shift from, uh, truth to to love and and like you said so perfectly that these two things are not intention that they lead to one another to to change the paradigm to love it it makes me it makes me a better person like it, it makes me a better christian it makes me a better friend it makes me a better husband it, it makes me a better um hopefully one day whatever i might become it, it really does put the the path to christ likeness on on a I don't want to say a fast track, but it, it makes it much more realizable in the here and now instead of this abstract kingdom one day idea. And so I think the, the next question would be, why, why is the church so hesitant to be loving instead of truthful? You know, I was just reflecting on this and I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't presume to know at all, but one interesting or curious thought I just had was, you know, thinking unique thoughts are what would make the church unique. So if mm-hmm. I'm trying to say that there's only one way, um, and I, I'm really trying to distance myself from other religions, I would need to do that by virtue of distinct beliefs. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, like, if it's the goal is about being a better husband or being a better friend or being a better human being and spreading more love into the world, that could be said about almost any religion. Uh, for me, sure. that's exciting. I like that. It's like, oh, that's great. Um, I, you know, we'll take as many people as we can on this bandwagon of making the world a more loving place. Um, but I think that's threatening for people who see it as important as the goal is to make sure people understand that Christianity is unique in some way. Uh, and that becomes the most important thing. And to do that, you have to go the route of truth um, rather than the route of love, because there are plenty of non-Christians that I know who love people really well and very deeply. And so it starts to get murkier. So I think if you like boundaries and if you think the goal is to keep Christianity pure and unique, I would think you would probably tend toward that way of framing your faith. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, but that's such a, that's such a strange paradigm. I don't know if you've, you've ever read it, but I have my bookshelf right here 
um, and I'm assuming you have, but there's, I think it was Philip Yancey who wrote it, but it's the lost history of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, I read it, it. I I don't know when my deconstruction started. I think it genuinely started like my first semester at Bible college. Cause there was so many things that I just started learning, but that was one of the books I read. And it really, it was a book that really changed my faith. And one of the things that really changed my faith was this idea. Oh, it's Jenkins. Not, not, uh, not Yancey. Um, yeah, he's a missiologist. Uh, I mean, Jenkins yeah, like yeah, studies yeah. the history of of kind of uh, missions and stuff, right? Yeah. yeah, not not Jerry B. Jenkins. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> another <guy>. Jenkins. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the things that was so profound to me, and unfortunately, it's it's one of the things that really did lead to the Church in the East's downfall, was its ability to interact with faiths and philosophies uh, revolving around it. And and there were forums, and there were debates, and there were all these things, but they were able to sit and eat and, and talk and, and find common ground and agree and, and all these different things, um, that the church today, um, doesn't do. And, and it might just be me. It like, it could, it could literally just be me. But to me, the, the idea that truth is what's going to make Christianity unique. It, it's so upside down and backwards. I'd agree. Um, but, uh, it's it's confusing and and it's frustrating and and why why do you think that is because it's I mean Jesus never said they will know you are my disciples by the way that you preach the truth mm-hmm. it's what what do you, what do you think the reasoning is behind the, this I mean I don't even I don't I don't even like the word truth but it's like what is it that makes us cling so desperately to this idea that what will make us to in direct I don't want to be too heavy handed, but in direct disobedience and contrarianism to Jesus saying what will make us unique, what will make us stand out, what will make us bring people in isn't our love. It's our truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I, don't, I think we've been dancing around some of that here. And, and again, I think it's a confluence mm-hmm. of a lot of things that are happening all at the same time. I think it's us living in the modern era, which is already privileging kind of our intellect and our head knowledge over other ways of being in the world. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that coupled with um, this identity um, and, and this, these boundaries and gatekeeping for who's in and who's out. Um, and then I think that even under that level of why do we feel the need to have these boundaries, you know, in some ways we think we're protecting God and the purity of God, but I think in some ways we're also protecting ourselves. It feels good to be in, a, in an exclusive group and the easiest way mm. to do that is to do it via what you know and don't know, um, kind of having this checklist of beliefs um, that feels pretty safe and secure. And the idea of, you know, the idea of love is, is gray. It's not black and white. Um, mm. it's, it's not, a, it's messier. I mean, love is messier than facts. Uh, and that's, I think yeah. that's why we, we <laughs> tend toward that. Um, but we can't get out of it. We're human beings. And so we, we're never going to be pure robots as much as I think some people in the modern world would actually want us to be sort of the more efficient we can be or the less emotional we can be, the better. It's like, well, basically, you know, if you take that to its logical conclusion, we're robots. Mm. And, and I think we can't be so dismissive of our emotion and is it messier? Yeah, but it can create more beauty as well. Hmm. Yeah, no, it, yeah, it can create more beauty. And, and with that, I mean, 
even just thinking about Jesus, like I, I think for me, like I, that's really something I've been reflecting on is just the way, especially before interviewing you, just the way that he loved people. And, and there's the story that's always brought up in big contention in, in seminaries and, and progressive podcasts and, and stuff like that, where the, where uh, Jesus kind of compares this woman to a dog. Um, and she basically rebukes him and says, no, like even the dogs get the scraps and they're fed and taken care of. And, it's a it's an interesting moment for for truth versus um, love and and I, I mean just for the sake of 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 the the idea like does that how do you think Jesus modeled this this idea of love mattering more mm-hmm. yeah I mean I think at the end of the day um, Jesus models this in his death. Hmm. And I think that's important. And and I think the phrases, you know, that the the Son of Man didn't come to serve, uh, didn't come to be served, but to serve others. Um, his rebuke of power and putting yourself over others uh, was, I think, really significant in this march toward love. Hmm. And so I think it's been. Yeah, I, I think Jesus models it quite a bit, and of course that culminates then in in the in his death. And you know, Jesus, some of these things are interesting, um, because I think that's often yeah a good good uh, story around uh, the Jesus calling the Canaanite woman uh, a dog, um, and recognizing that. I guess for me, there are some passages in the Bible. That goes back to the beginning of what I would say, which is love today isn't going to look the same as love in Jesus's day. And I think that's a that's a error we make. It's this mm. error that says we should just go back. If we could all just live like they did back then. Um, one, that's not possible. <laughs> but two, yeah. it's it. I think it's dismissing what Jesus says, which is, it's actually better for me to go away because you will do greater things than me. I will send uh, the Spirit of God who will actually guide you into all truth in the, in the future. Mm. It, it's better. Like the, the trajectory and things are better than what I, even I am prepared here to give you. Like that's insane for Jesus to say that. In my tradition, that wouldn't be accepted. That everything we can know and should know about love and life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness and all that jazz is inherent already in the words of Jesus. It's all self-contained. Mm. But I think Jesus himself dismisses that. So I think it's an important mm. starting place, but I'd actually rather follow Jesus's trajectory and say there is more to learn, and we can we can stand on the shoulders of Jesus and follow in the footsteps of Jesus and lean on the Spirit of God as a community to figure out what does love look like right now in the midst of Black Lives Matter and in the midst of a pandemic and it, you know, there is nothing in the new Testament about how to love your neighbor in the midst of a global pandemic. We we have (laughs) to figure that out. And that's the life of wisdom. And for me, wisdom is simply this parsing out of love in our current context. Mm. Just, just for the sake of, of the, the question and for having a, a podcast titled the Bible for normal people, do you think that the answers to that can be found within the confines of the Bible? No. Okay. I don't think the answers can be. I think the some principles 
um, some trajectories um, can be. But I, I don't see how the answer to how to love your neighbor in the midst of a global pandemic can be found in a book wherein there is no mention nor awareness of global pandemics. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, doesn't that create so many problems? It's it's so sad. I mean, I I, I might get kind of angry about it, but seeing certain churches just be like, yeah, there's actually one in my hometown. And so it's, it, it is a really like hot button issue for me personally of like, oh, well, this is persecution. Like the fact that the pastor got a cease and desist from the county is persecution. Um, and even at that, it's like, I would scream love matters more. And, and that's the problem is, is growing up in a very insular conservative Christian community it's, it's like, oh, well, don't you care about uh, your rights? Don't you care about the First Amendment? Don't you care about these things? But it's like, but my love for my neighbor matters more than my First Amendment right. I love my First Amendment right. But like lo the love of, of my neighbor who has an autoimmune deficiency or has brutal asthma or has lung cancer is infinitely more important than me being able to go to church on Sunday. Right. And it. And that's the, that's the thing. I mean, I'm, shoot, I'm going to get fired up about it, but that's the thing that frustrates me so much is it's like, why can't you understand? Like, yes, there, the truth is, is we have this first amendment, right? But it's like time and time again, like even you, you mentioned that the Bible gives us trajectories, but it's like the Bible points us to like laying down those rights. The Bible points us to sacrificing those things for our neighbor. And yet we're so caught up in this truth uh, paradigm that we can't be like, you know what, I need to surrender this in this season. And it's not persecution and it's not violence against the church. And it's not the end times. Like this is just a season in life where life looks different. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's challenging to convince people of that um, because they think that they are protecting, that the loving thing to do is to protect this First Amendment right, which feels under attack to them. Yeah. I think that's a challenge for sure. I I don't have any good yeah. answers for that. Yeah, no, me ne me neither. I've I feel like I've had enough conversations with people like that to to know that I don't have any but, good response. But I do. What, you know what I would say though is there's this there's this interesting passage in, in Matthew five when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, and you know we we tend to focus on the the Beatitudes, blessed are the this and the blessed are the that. But there's this interesting passage in there that's been really important for me lately. And it's where Jesus says, you know what, you should be like your father in heaven. And how does this God act? Well, this God sends rain on the just and the unjust and sends sunshine on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know, therefore, be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. And so there's this explicit call to be like God. And what's the content of that call? The content of the call is treat even your neighbors the same way as your friends that mm. even when someone is acting unjustly we shouldn't even be able to discriminate no one should be able to tell the difference between the good people and the bad people by the way you're behaving toward them mm. and that's been a pretty radical call for me something i would definitely struggle with but i think that's how jesus frames this god who acts indiscriminately so I would say, yeah, as it relates to this, it's to say, yes, even if I care about my First Amendment right, how I treat people who wear masks needs to reflect this God who is sends 
mercies and grace and compassion on the just and unjust alike. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I feel like that's so, (laughs) that's so convicting for, for so many different, uh, situations that the world finds itself in of, of, um, everyone that believes in, uh, or follows the black lives matter organization is a Marxist and everyone that doesn't is a Nazi. Mm -hmm. Right. um, And, but, and the the key is people think that that, therefore justifies as your behavior justifies whatever behavior comes after that mm. well they're they're right. a Marxists, and so you know i had someone on uh, facebook the other day who called the rioters dogs and animals mm. and and that is that slippery slope of once i call someone my enemy and and of course in that case a dog or an animal is just dehumanizing someone totally what i'm really trying to do is justify my bad behavior and that's why I like that passage where Jesus says, listen, if you're going to be like God, there is nothing that justifies that bad behavior. So if someone mm-hmm. says to me, yeah, but don't you know they're Marxists? I say, okay. And? Well, don't you know, don't you know they're mm-hmm. after this or after, okay. What's your point? Like, are, are you expecting me then to say, oh, it's okay that you call them bad names and you don't listen to them and you, uh, you know, and you, you rile up people against other people, like, it does, you know, whatever you're looking for for me to justify that, I'm not going to buy it. Hmm. Yeah. Gosh, that 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 is challenging. I think even for myself, I think these last few days, especially watching these protests go down and and seeing literal white <laughs> white supremacists show up in some of these cities and being like, "Well, like I'm a pacifist, but I'd punch a Nazi." Like thinking things like that, like that is that's the hardest thing right is it's like that's not the call that that we are called to, right you know but but it's also not to be a doormat and so i think i think it's important mm. in this conversation i don't want to give the impression that it's also not about standing up for justice yeah and, and that's the so, navig that's how, that's the wisdom that's the difficult part mm. and so, so what do you think that looks like like for for so many people there's this desire to stand up and i think it, who knows where things are going to be? I, I mean, I have a I have a theory where all of this is going to kind of vanish after November third. Um, I really hope it doesn't because there are real people that are being affected by the events going on right now. Um, but what is what does that balance look like for those of us that are like I want to stand up for truth, and when I see hateful people try to take advantage of of underprivileged people in certain circumstances and prey on the weak and and me as a person who is called to do justice and love mercy what does that look like when love matters more than than the the reality of the situation well there's a, a few things one i think boundaries are important so in that instance which was my first time i think i've ever done that um that person i i gave them a heads up and said hey listen i can't have you call people animals on my page um and then, so I said, I just wanted to let you know so that tomorrow when you wake up and you don't see your comment, I'm just letting you know why. Um, and mm. then he doubled down and and said, well, I'm, I'm not going to apologize for that. It's what I think and all this sort of thing. Um, and so I unfriended him. It was my first time I've ever done that because I've never had someone who doubled down like that. Um, mm. And I, I don't think that was unloving. Um, mm. I, I had, I, I want him to win in life. I, I have compassion for him. Um, I'm not angry at him. I just have a boundary mm. that I think I think that language is is harmful and dangerous, um, and so I think there's a sense of boundaries. I think everybody has to do that on their own. They have to decide 
where the boundary is. And you can set up boundaries in kind and compassionate ways, or you can do it in hateful ways. And I would opt for the kind and compassionate. But the second thing I think is I think we've, we've gotten into this place where sort of emotional moral outrage is seen as standing up for people um, mm. instead of, I think, the harder work of, you know, there are things um, canvassing for political candidates that you think represent justice in a more robust way. Um, getting involved in the political scene, I think, is, is a way more practical way. You know, being involved in your local town council and being involved in your local politics and in finding practical ways to do that than just being enraged and posting your opinion on a social media website. Not saying that those things mm. are bad, but I think it does make it harder for love to matter more or for at least that to shine through. Um, so I'm, I'm more interested in, in, in the systems of oppression and dismantling the systems of oppression and, and personal relationships with people where I earn the right to speak into their life. than I am, you know, the absence of doing the hard work and doing the emotional labor and then just spitting opinions out. Mm. Yeah. That's really good. And, and and we've kind of danced around application and, and I, we're, we're running short on time and I really, I want to be respectful of, of your afternoon. Um, but I think it last question really would be what, what is the application? Like what is the basic application for, I mean, just to make it personal, like what is the application for me as an individual? What is the application for me as a member of a church? What is the application for me as a person who is desperately in love with Jesus, who wants other people to to know about the love that Jesus has for them? What what does my life look like when I when I'm living in the paradigm that love matters more than than truth than or than being right? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know that takes up a, a huge chunk of the book because I, I wanted it to be practical, but I think it's it's things like being self aware. And, and quick to acknowledge when your ego is in the way, quick to acknowledge mm. when maybe the motives you have aren't as pure as you wish they were, um, finding that our identity is in our ideology or in our beliefs rather than in our identities of who we are in Christ or who, you know, who we are in our community of faith or whatever that is. Um, so I think the, the, you know, the real practical thing is when I can when I feel that I can, I can hold my convictions, not compromise my convictions um, and commitments in a compassionate way. And I think mm. that's the tricky part is, do I leave every interaction feeling that I didn't compromise and yet that person felt that I loved them and I cared for them? And that's mm. for me, that's my goal in any interaction. Um, is, is that the balance for me between loving myself and loving my neighbor? Do I love my neighbor as myself is, did I stand up for what I think is right? Did I have those convictions? And yet, did I do it in a way that didn't demean or, uh, or condescend to the person that I'm talking to? Did they feel dignified and that I respected them in my conversation? Hmm. Dang. Yeah. And, and that it really is what it comes. I mean, circ circle it all back to Jesus. Like that really is what it all comes down to is like Jesus gave dignity to people. Like he took the, like you said earlier, like it, 
he came not to be served, but to serve. And he gave dignity to people that didn't have it prior to him entering their lives. And I think right. that's, we, we in this century have such a profound opportunity to do that for the people around us. And not to say that we, we are their saviors and, and not to say that we are somehow magically changing their lives, but we have this opportunity to, um, in Christianese term, be ambassadors of that same um, recognition of the goodness and and the the love that is desired to be experienced with with the people around us. Right. Yep. Well, Jared, I I know we're coming to the end, and and I usually just I I know we've we've talked before, but I really do just every time I I try to end the conversations by encouraging my guests because I think. The, this the show it, it's kind of developed a mind of its own but that is such an important part of the christian life the christian practice and i think it's something that is sometimes unfortunately lacking um within uh certain communities that have gone through deconstruction but it's also lacking everywhere so i i really want to nail that as a practice that is worth holding on to um but i just want to say like i i am very thankful for you uh <laughs> um I'm very thankful for your work. Um, I'm very thankful for this book. I have it. I haven't started it yet, but I'm, I'm very excited to read it. Um, I, I'm, I'm thankful for the way that you kind of operate in relationship with people. I feel like my relationship with Christian apologetics and, and arguments for faith was really, really, really tainted um, until I started kind of encountering your work and the way that you used it to actually love people and build relationships and bridges um, instead of just kind of building up walls and being like, if you can't get past this wall, I'm right and you're wrong. So you have to recognize what I believe. Mm. Um, and so I just really want to say I'm, I'm, I'm humbled and I'm thankful that you came on this podcast because you are someone who um, has really informed the way I view um the ability to interact with people on a, on not an argumentative, but uh, a, a, a platform of discourse. Um, and yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm so excited to read this book, but yeah, you've, your work has really inspired me. And so I just want to say that to you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It means a lot. I really appreciate it, Chris. Absolutely. So where can people find you and, and I mean, you just came out with this book, but are you working on anything else at the moment? Uh, no, right now, I all my attention is, is to just promoting the book. And, and really, for me, the book is a, a launching point for really promoting a conversation about this. That's, that's the most important thing for me is, are we talking more about love? Are we talking about how we can have those conversations like you're talking about? So, yeah, you can go to lovemattersmorebook.com um, for that. And, of course, we're always having conversations at uh, thebibleformormalpeople.com. Um, well, actually on, on Patreon, you know, patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people is where we have a lot of those conversations and videos. And we're always talking about the Bible. We're always having arguments and disagreements and figuring out what it means and doesn't mean. But hopefully in that context of, a, of an accepting community uh, where we can be yeah. ourselves, bring our dumb questions, our good questions, our different opinions. And that's OK. That's it's all part of the gig. Heck yeah. Uh, and I, I love that community, too, for any of my listeners. If you haven't heard the Bible for Normal People, if you're not involved with the work they're doing or the community that they have, please go check them out. They, um, For the Bible nerds out there and, and for even the people that want to to dive deeper and, and understand things on a, on a deeper and more 
uh, scholastic level, they are such a good, you guys, you are such a good resource for, for those people. And I guess in closing, uh, kind of a humorous question, but, but once you leave Calvinism, how does God ordination work? Um, you know, that's a really good question. I mean, <laughs> we didn't really question it. We just, we got an email from God one day that said we were ordained, you know, so who are we to question it and, and try to understand the yeah. process? You know, at the end of the day, if God ordains you, you just say thank you and you, you don't ask questions. <laughs> well, I mean, it's better than, than God friending you on Facebook, right? <laughs> yeah. and just to send you that message. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, man. Well, again, thank you so much, Jared. And I'm I'm looking forward to to continuing kind of my journey with you guys through through your new book and, and through the podcast as always. And and just thank you for being on the show today. Absolutely. Thanks again.